can open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 and Romans 11. Ephesians 1, Romans 11, those are two larger passages that we're going to touch on today. Primarily, though, our main text is going to be in Romans 11. We are already behind time. This doesn't bode well for us. Good thing it's not warm in here or uncomfortable, right? Or that odd time of the season when we don't have the air on and we're not using heat. So this is all you, all this in here. That's, uh, but we'll make it. Romans 11, Ephesians 1. When Timothy and Pravalika came to our church, uh, they didn't have much at all when they moved to Windsor. And so uh, Becky and I gave them a television. And very spiritually encouraging, right? Uh, I gave them a television. But uh, they're, they're moving to Halifax, as some of you know. And so they gave uh, us the television back. And so I've had this 46-inch TV just sitting on the floor of my office, which is not where it belongs. So I thought, well, what should I do with this? And so I put it up on the wall in my office. And you're thinking, well, how's that going to help you with your studying, right? Uh, well, hold on. Uh, so, but if, if it's not, generally what I've been using that for is I'll, I'll have like kind of like New Orleans jazz playing on my TV, right? And uh, videos of some bands and so on. It makes me not feel so lonely while I'm studying. Uh, but if I'm not playing that, what I like to play on the TV are just nature documentaries with the sound off. And uh, so I can just look over my computer monitor, and there I see the wonders of God's creation just flashing in front of me. Uh, sometimes you put the sound on so I can hear David Attenborough, right? But, uh, but otherwise, I just love looking and seeing God's creation. Love the nature documentaries. And it just puts me in awe. Have you ever watched a nature documentary where they're showing you ocean life? There are some strange, strange things that live in the depths of the ocean. I mean, things that if you didn't know, you would think you're watching a sci-fi movie, right? Uh, you, you see some of these things and say, that looks like that came out of the mind of a, of a of science fiction author. Have you seen an anglerfish? You know what that is? It's got them giant jaws, and it's got this thing that comes off its head with a little light. And what it does is it tricks creatures in the depths to come towards the light, and then it eats them, right? Uh, but they look like something out of a nightmare. I saw a picture the other day of a, an ant, and its face was magnified, and so it was a close-up of its face, and it, again, looked monstrous, right? But you look at these things and say, uh, they're otherworldly sometimes. But even then, as scientists go to the jungles or the, to the depths of the oceans and they make new discoveries... Even though it may be something they've never discovered before, we as human beings always have some category or some language we can use to describe that thing. Why? Because it's all made out of the same stuff. All made, uh, uh, all creatures, uh, all of the creative order ultimately are made up out of the same stuff so that we have categories to explain what we see. Even if we've never seen it before, we can say, well, it's kind of like this. It kind of puts me in mind of that. We have categories and we have language to explain things. Uh, Well, this morning, we're going to consider that there is someone who stands outside of the creative order to the degree that, as human beings, we actually lack the categories and lack the language to describe him. Of course, we're going to be talking about God. Specifically, we're going to be thinking about God and his incomprehensibility. 
This morning, we want to consider that we ought to stand in humility when we consider God and His nature. That the Lord and the Lord alone is the holy other, one who stands apart from all of creation and one who cannot be captured by human language or by human knowledge because God cannot be compared to anything. That's pretty humbling. It ought to be humbling to think about. It should remind us that as his creatures, we are limited. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 18 says this, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? No one can stand before God and say, Well, you know what? God in his actual essence is kind of like, no, there is no language. There are no categories which capture God in his divine essence. We can never actually describe God perfectly, nor can we actually know God in his true essence. We can only know God as he has so graciously revealed himself to us. As finite creatures, we are limited to the language of finite creatures. We can never describe God's perfectly. So what is the revelation that God has, though, given to us regarding his nature? Well, he gives us some revelation through creation. So there's something that can be known about God by all the created order. Uh, we can look at his creatures. Uh, we can look at, at human beings and say, well, we as those made in his image are kind of a dim reflection of him and his nature. Uh, and so we can see mankind with joy and compassion, for instance, and say, well, that's a dim reflection of those things existing in God perfectly. So that helps us to know something about God, the created order, human beings made in his image, and then obviously his word also reveals to us something about God. We can attain some measure of understanding through his self-revelation. You might say, well, but doesn't the Bible present to us exactly who God is? Well, have you ever noticed that when you read the Bible, there's a whole lot of metaphors? There's a whole lot of uh, like and as. You understand that when you're reading the Bible and you read that God sees across the earth, that God doesn't actually have eyes. You understand that when you read biblically that God inclines his ear to hear, that God doesn't actually have ears. You understand that when you read that God stretches out his hands to judge, he doesn't actually have hands. Those are metaphors. Those are what we could call anthropomorphisms, the ascribing to God human-like qualities. Not because he has any form, but because this is God condescending to us, revealing himself to us in language that we can understand in our limited nature. And so we we also see biblical authors ascribing to God human actions, like God changing his mind, or God remembering, or God relenting. All of these also are metaphors. Even human passions like anger and jealousy and sorrow and regret are ascribed to God. Again, these are anthropomorphisms, or when you're dealing with uh, emotion, you can say anthropopathisms, that is, uh, with that root word passion, ascribing to God human emotion that actually uh, simply are metaphorical. This language abounds in Scripture because the Lord in His kindness has condescended to a people who could never actually comprehend the true essence of God. And so He in His grace extends uh, Himself to us uh, really in the context of our limited language. The reality is God in His perfect essence is far beyond our capability of understanding or apprehending. The testimony of Scripture is that the Lord in His essence is actually incomprehensible. 
He's incomprehensible by the human mind and inexpressible by human language. You say, well, this is kind of a weird sermon. Why are we talking about this this morning? Remember what we talked about last week? We talked about God as our merciful Heavenly Father. One of the things we emphasize a lot at Calvary Baptist Church is God as Father. One of the things we like to emphasize about the Lord Jesus Christ is the fact that He is our high priest who's sympathetic to our weaknesses. We talk a lot about God's mercy and God's compassion and God's forgiveness because God presents Himself that way. What I'm going to suggest to you this morning is we must be careful. What I'd like us to understand is as much as we want to emphasize the imminence of God, imminence with an A, I'm not going to spell it for you, not imminence, imminence, uh, that is the nearness of God, as much as we want to emphasize the nearness of God, we must not forget that the God who is our Heavenly Father, who comes and extends mercy and grace to us with a kindness that's sympathetic to our weaknesses, is also the transcendent and incomprehensible God. And so we have a mandate for that, as we're going to see in a little bit. The Lord, who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger, that we saw last week, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, is also the transcendent God. In the Lord's mercies, being sympathetic to our frailties, he has presented himself to us as a loving father. He's presented himself to us as a loving father, and we as his beloved adopted children. He does this, as we saw last week, to assure us of our unconditional acceptance through Jesus. He would have us be comforted. He wants to assure us that if you belong to Jesus, there is now no condemnation for you, but it's all love and acceptance. Like children in a perfectly loving home, we can have that calm rest in the presence of our merciful Heavenly Father. So, again, why a sermon on the incomprehensibility of God now It's necessary lest we take the merciful revelation of God uh, as our Heavenly Father and think that it means that God in His essence is just some magnified version of ourselves, Uh, just some uh, grand heavenly dad, and that's it. As much as we can rightly take comfort in those things, we can be guilty of forgetting that God with whom we have entered relationship is the infinite transcendent, and incomprehensible creator of the universe. We're going to see multiple passages where the biblical authors balance those two truths. This is the God who told Moses that if anyone were to see him in the fullness of his essence, he said they would die. Not as a matter of judgment, but simply as a matter of the limitations of humankind. We cannot see God for who he truly is until we are like him. No human being can bear the incomprehensible glory of the Lord's divine essence. And so we have a mandate to think deeply about both the Lord's imminence, that he is near, that he's like a father to his children, but also his transcendence, that he is far above our ways, because Scripture clearly presents God as both. The biblical authors sometimes are like a tightrope walkers, you know? You see a tightrope walker, a guy maybe is going to walk over Niagara Falls or something like that on a tightrope, and he's got that big pole for balance, and he kind of leans this way and leans that way and leans the other way, but he stays right there on that line. That's like the biblical author sometimes talking about the imminence of God and the transcendence of God. Uh, he is near like a father, and he's compassionate, and he's never going to leave you or forsake you, and so be comforted by that tender assurance, but also understand that this is the, it's frightening to be in the presence of uh, the glorious uh, Creator. We're going to see an example of that in Isaiah 55. 
We are going to get to our text in Romans 11 eventually. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Listen to how Isaiah presents the Lord. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. That's the eminence of the Lord. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. He's saying the Lord is near. The Lord is extending pardon. So come to him and be comforted. But then he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return but uh, return there but water the earth, making it bring forth sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The Lord first will have himself known as the compassionate Lord. He extends pardon. If you're, this, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, understand that God extends pardon to you. He extends pardon to rebels, but with that, he would have those same people recognize that the Lord who extends pardon to to them is the incomprehensible God. His thoughts are not their thoughts. His ways are not their ways. God's thoughts are so infinitely higher than ours that Isaiah compares it to what? As high above the earth as are the heavens. The infinite universe uh, in its expanse, can, uh, if you can imagine that, which we can't, but if you could, uh, the distance between the earth and the infinite universe. That's how far above God's ways are from our ways. But then even there in Isaiah chapter 55, we see in what context God is being revealed as the infinite and incomprehensible one. Isaiah would have us understand the immensity of God in the context of what? God's purposes. It says there that God's word will go forth and will accomplish all of his purposes and will not return to him empty. God is being presented this way in order to give assurance to his people that God will accomplish all of his purposes. And in this context, his purposes in delivering his people from captivity. Interesting. So we see the importance of God's people grasping both the eternality and the nearness of God. He would have them stand in wonder at both his infinite nature and the wisdom with which he executes his purposes to save. Keep that in mind because we're going to see that theme over and over again. Now, Romans 11. We're going to see that Paul does something very similar to Isaiah. Read the book of Romans if you haven't. Romans chapter 9 through 11 are some of the richest chapters in the New Testament. Theologically rich wondrous, talking about our salvation, taking a peek behind the divine curtain and seeing theologically how God has worked out our salvation. Paul in these chapters then explores how God saves and specifically how he saved Gentiles and Jews. Even those Jews who would reject the Messiah, the Lord will bring them back in as a saved remnant and graft them into the church. And it's absolutely amazing how the Lord has chosen to work out salvation. Paul outlines all of this in chapters 9 through 11. In all of it, he celebrates the sovereign grace of God in salvation. He celebrates how the Lord has chosen to show mercy to whomsoever he chooses to show mercy. He marvels at the kindness of God who adopts Gentiles into the family, and then even saves Jews uh, who uh, rejected his son. 
As Paul meditates on salvation in this way and the kindness of God towards sinful people, he wells up with thankful praise. And that's what bursts forth in Romans chapter 11, verse 33 through 36. Let's read it. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Just like Isaiah Paul is contemplating the Lord as the compassionate and forgiving God. And he marvels at the wisdom and knowledge of God as seen in how he's orchestrated the salvation plan, the gospel. You and I also, this morning, as we consider God as our Heavenly Father who's extended mercy to us, unworthy sinners, adopted into his family, granting us all the riches that are due, Christ alone should have this same sense of thankfulness welling up inside of us so that we can't help but also burst forth into this kind of worship. Notice here, however, that Paul does not merely marvel at the nature of salvation, but at the nature of salvation uh, as orchestrated by the incomprehensible God. He stands in awe then at the foot of the incomprehensible God. He marvels as he considers that the infinite and unchanging, and all-powerful, and all-knowing, and everywhere present, holy God has worked this salvation. With this, we see an awesome example of Christian worship. Paul has just, again, spent three chapters speaking of God's love and compassion and mercy. The wonders of all of this then are magnified as he considers that all of this is worked by the unapproachable God. He's not the only one who is careful to present both God's imminence, his nearness, and his transcendence. In addition to Isaiah, in addition to Paul, we see David in Psalm 145 do the same thing. He says this, he says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is what? Unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Where have we heard that before? The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. So according to David, this is the everlasting king. The king who has dominion, which endures forever, whose greatness is unsearchable, whose majesty is glorious, and whose works are wondrous. But it's the same God who what? Who is gracious and merciful. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The eternal king 
has condescended to show us mercy. The majestic God has bowed to show us love. This was enough to cause David again to burst forth in praise. I will extol you, my God and my King, and bless your name forever and ever, just like Paul in Romans 11. Every day I will bless you, he says, and praise your name forever and ever. So I I want us to take some time this morning to look back at Romans 11 as Paul extols the Lord after considering how he's graciously extended his mercy through the gospel. We're going to take this phrase by phrase. First of all, look in Romans chapter 11, verse 33 in Paul's, and this is really like a hymn. It's like a hymn-like doxology here. We see, first of all, that as Paul considers the salvation plan and the immensity of the Lord who orchestrated that plan, he says in verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Have you been mountain climbing? Probably not a lot of you. I haven't, and I never will be, because I'm somewhat afraid of heights. Uh, I'm not going to do that, but imagine this. Imagine a man scaling a mountain, finally getting to the mountaintop, turning and then just looking at the landscape all around him, and just in wonder looking at that and uh, just marveling at, the, at its beauty. That's like Paul here having now scaled the mountain of the gospel in the first 11 chapters of Romans, getting to the top of it, turning and assessing everything that he's written about the mercy and grace of God, and then saying, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And he says what? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. What are the riches that Paul is talking about here? What are the riches that are putting Paul in awe as he considers the gospel? Well, we get a clue from the context. And this is good, maybe, guidance for us if you're reading the Bible. Uh, How do we define riches? Well, just look at the context. So, Romans 10, Romans 11, Romans chapter 10, verse 12. Paul says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, and bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The riches here are the riches of salvation and everything that accompanies our salvation. Romans 11, verse 12. Now, if their trespasses, that's the trespasses of the Jews, means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Again, showing us that these riches have to do with salvation and all the riches that accompany salvation, those spiritual blessings. And so Paul's marveling, oh, the depth of the riches. Now, Probably not recommended when you're, when you're preparing a sermon to read a text as big as the one I'm about to read, but oh well. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to, through 23. In this text, we're going to see Paul explicitly lay out for us what these riches of salvation actually are. These are what caused Paul to marvel in Romans 11 and not to cause us to marvel as well. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 23. We're going to go quickly, as you can tell. So, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that, he who, for, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers." That the, Lord, uh, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places." far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, and not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head to, uh, as all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all, fills all in all. Not done yet. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in, the trespass, in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated, and he has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Isn't it clear what the riches are? You see that phrase over and over again in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2. These are the riches chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. We're made holy and blameless before him. We're predestined to adoption as sons. We are the products of his glorious grace resulting in praise. We are redeemed from the slavery of sin. We are forgiven our trespasses. We are lavished upon with God's grace. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We are promised a heavenly and eternal inheritance. And all of this, the product of all of this, You say that all of this then is the product of what? Not our works, but by the grace of God. Those are the riches that Paul is talking about here. That's enough to make us, as you meditate on all of that, that's enough to make any of us, even the most reserved of us, to cry out, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. That's Paul. That's what he's meditating on in this context. Now look in Romans chapter 11. The latter part of verse 33, Paul then 
proclaims how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. You ever get bored of the gospel? You ever get bored of the good news? You get bored of the salvation plan? Oh, the gospel, that's for unbelievers. The gospel, if you're a new Christian and you think about the gospel, maybe you rejoice in it. But you know what? I've been saved a long time, and so that's just been there, done that. It's become old hat to me. I hope that's never the case. Here's Paul, as mature as he is, and all the wisdom that he has regarding the salvation plan, and he's not over it. As he thinks about the gospel, he says, How unsearchable are his judgments. To think that God in his divine wisdom divine such a, devised such a plan is beyond Paul and beyond us. That God would include you and I in such a plan. The idea that he would do this, uh, the depth of his wisdom is fr- frankly unsearchable. It's unfathomable and incomprehensible that God would save us. That he would adopt us that he would unite us to his son, and that he would pour out all the blessings that are deserved by Christ and not by us. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. Isaiah says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And that's where Paul's mind is as he thinks about the salvation plan. Such a plan is inscrutable. The magnitude of the wonder which is the gospel is impossible for us to fully appreciate. Woe to the person who's bored by the gospel. Paul continually marveled that he was granted by the grace of God the privilege, the privilege to proclaim that gospel. Not only is he in wonder of the message of salvation, but the fact that he was commissioned by God to preach such a message was overwhelming to him. So we could say, you know, woe to the person who's bored of the gospel, like woe to the person who's, who's, who's a boring preacher, right? Uh, unfortunately, some of the people who are bored of the gospel are behind pulpits. That's not Paul. Uh, Paul is overcome by the reality, not only of salvation, but that he got to preach it. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. Verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light For everyone, what is the plan for the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He's saying the Lord has brought me to the, uh, uh, to that well of salvation. And he's permitted that I can maybe just draw from that well and share it with others. And he's just absolutely floored by that reality that God would grant him that privilege. And again, there in Ephesians, the emphasis from Paul is on the wisdom of God. According to verse 10 in that passage, he says, The church is a community of saved sinners who are saved by the grace of God and stands as a testament to the manifold wisdom of God. And so we could say this. We could say, uh, Sunday morning here at Calvary Baptist Church, they look around. Men and women saved by the grace of God who are absolutely unworthy and unable to save themselves. God has redeemed you. He's forgiven you. He's adopted you into his family. He's granted you all the privileges due his son. He's given you his divine nature. He's united you together with every other believer in Christ. This is evidence of the manifold wisdom of God in the salvation plan. That's enough to make you worship, isn't it? 
The existence and nature of the church testifies to the incredible wisdom of God and how he's designed the salvation plan. Absolutely amazing. We stand back like that man again atop the mountain, surveying the vast vistas and just say, how unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable are his ways? It's beyond you and it's beyond me that he would ever adopt us and save us and unite us. Such thoughts leave us in awe with nowhere to turn but to unqualified praise. Well, Paul, to further magnify the Lord's unsearchable and incomprehensible ways uh, in the remainder of Romans 11, he makes two quotations from the Old Testament. In verse 34, he quotes Isaiah chapter 40. He says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Theologically, this is speaking of God's self-sufficiency, God's independence. This is what we could call the aseity of God, the aseity of God. He doesn't learn from anyone. He doesn't depend on anyone. And frankly, no one can fully comprehend the mind of the Lord, let alone be his counselor as if God needs advice. Now, many of us and many people you might encounter would love to give God advice. Lord, why don't you do it this way? Uh, Lord, why don't you do it uh, that way? Uh, Lord, let me, let me, give me your ear here. Let me tell you a better way to work these things out. And what Paul is saying, uh, who has been his counselor? No one. He is absolutely independent and absolutely self-sufficient. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. Interestingly, what we're going to see in Isaiah chapter 40 is what led Isaiah to talk about the Lord's independence, his self-sufficiency, his aseity is a very similar thing that led Paul to extol the same things in Romans chapter 11. And Isaiah, as he speaks about the Lord's self-sufficiency and independence and incomprehensibility, it's in the exact same or a very similar context. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, says this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? We started talking with the imminence of God. God is our Heavenly Father. God is that merciful one. God who is slow to anger and forgiving uh, and so on. And here in Isaiah 40, we see the same themes coming forward. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is in the context of the captivity. And the proclamation is this. The day is going to come when Israel will return from captivity and God will save them from their oppressors. That's the context. Verse 3, a voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry, and I, and I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Again, the context there is salvation, deliverance of God's people. And what God is saying is like the people are like grass, frail, fleeting, Temporal, yes, but what? The Lord's promises, the Lord's word stands forever. They are unworthy and they are unable, but God is faithful. That's the idea. So, amazing is the promise of his deliverance 
that, like Paul, just floored by the fact that he's been granted the privilege of proclaiming the gospel. So awesome is the idea that God would deliver his people, that this ought to be shouted from the mountaintops. So you see this in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. Go on up to the high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Tender, mercy, comfort, deliverance is coming. Salvation is coming. Uh, proclaim that good news from the mountaintop. But then look at what Isaiah does. Having presented God as a tender, merciful, forgiving Savior. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with them, and his recompense before him. Not only is he the tender, merciful, loving, forgiving Savior coming to deliver his people, but he is the mighty God who's coming to rule. He's coming with power. He's coming with authority, both to reward and to judge. And then in verse 11, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. See what Isaiah is doing here? It's like that tightrope walker. God is a tender, loving, merciful God who just reaches down and collects together little lambs and, and comforts them. But he's the mighty God whose arm is coming with reward and judgment. Amazing. And then, in verse 12, what does he say about God? God who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. He's back in the other direction now. And marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills and the balance. And then we come to the text that Paul quotes. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him uh, the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop up from a bucket and are counted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like the fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are his beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. What's Isaiah doing? What will be a comfort to his people is understanding that the tender shepherd is the mighty God. The same hand that can hold the oceans is the hand that cradles his people as little lambs. Verse 13 and 14 says, no one can advise God. He doesn't consult with anyone. He does as he pleases. No one taught him justice. He's the source of justice. No one taught him knowledge or understanding. He's the source of all knowledge and understanding. Verse 18 then says what? To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. He is incomprehensible. Now, verse 27, what does he say? Verse 27, he shows us why the Lord through Isaiah is reminding his people of all of this. Why is Isaiah reminding people of the immensity of God and his self-sufficiency and his incomprehensibility and the fact that he's all-powerful? Verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is dis disregarded by my God? He's gone to these incredible heights, these incredible lengths 
to make his readers understand some measure of the greatness of God, which is so beyond their comprehension, so that they can have comfort. So that they can have comfort. How can you think that God has forgotten you? How can you think that he doesn't care about what's, what you're going through? How can you entertain the idea that God has forsaken you or forsaken his justice? The mighty, incomprehensible God is the tender shepherd who works salvation for his people. Isaiah verse 40, verse 28 continues. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. Here we are, back on the tightrope. The creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And he goes on to talk about how God gives strength to those who are weak. He's everlasting. He's the creator. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. His ways are unsearchable. Therefore, be comforted. Be comforted. Although the reason is beyond us, he has chosen to exercise all of his might and his wisdom and his power to work salvation for us. Now, what's incredible about this passage in Isaiah chapter 40 that Paul's quoting in Romans 11 is that the ultimate fulfillment of the salvation that's being worked by the mighty God here in this tender shepherd is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Remember when, the, remember when John the Baptist comes and he cries out and people say, who are you? And he says, I'm the voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He's quoting Isaiah 40. John the Baptist identifies with the voice in Isaiah 40. What does that mean? That means that when Jesus came, the salvation that's referenced here in Isaiah 40 finds its ultimate fulfillment in the coming of Christ. The mighty God, who is also the tender shepherd, arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. We are the beneficiaries of that salvation we just read about in Isaiah chapter 40. We too then should be reminded like the first readers of Isaiah 40, that the tender shepherd who has saved us is also our mighty God. He who mightily gathers up the oceans in his hands is the one who also has chosen to tenderly gather us together in his arms like a shepherd might gather sheep. Is that a stretch to see Jesus in Isaiah 40 as that transcendent, incomprehensible, mighty God? No, not at all. As I just said, you see the connection with John the Baptist, but also think of how Paul described Jesus in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13. In encouraging Timothy to stay faithful in ministry, he said this, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The tender shepherd is the mighty, incomprehensible, unapproachable God. Paul in Romans 11, like Isaiah and Isaiah 40, would have us understand that the God who works our salvation does so according to his unsearchable wisdom and according to his sovereign plan. His ways are far above our ways. His wisdom is not our wisdom. And again, we see this very clearly in Paul's next statement in Romans 11, verse 35. 
he now moves from quoting Isaiah to quoting the book of Job. He says, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No one has been the Lord's counselor. This is his plan, which is incomprehensible to us. But also, who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? What's the point here? His point is that as we consider the gospel, how God has worked salvation for his people, we ought to stand in awe. It's completely beyond us how and why he would work salvation this way. But there's one aspect of our salvation that stands out from the rest, which Paul proclaims clearly in verse 35. And that is that the wonders of this salvation, this wondrous salvation, is based not upon human works or merit, but entirely upon the grace of God. Paul's saying by quoting Job 41.11 that no one can ever make God a debtor. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? That's the idea. There's nothing we could ever offer to God or do for God which would place God in a position to owe us anything. All of this is in the context of how God, again, has worked salvation. Remember that we read in, in Ephesians And we saw that it parallels this text quite well, talking about all the riches of salvation. We saw that. Well, Paul in both Romans 11 and Ephesians not only extols the riches of salvation, but also emphasizes that this salvation comes by the grace of God. Ephesians 2 verse 4, again, says that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. He goes on to say that for by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of our own doing, it's the gift of God. Why? So that no one could ever boast. If salvation were a product of human works, we could say, well, God has just simply given me what I deserved. God just gave me what I owed because I've been a good boy or a good girl. Uh, I earned it. Not at all. Paul says that nobody can ever make God a debtor. Salvation is entirely by grace. It does not rest on human works at all. No one can boast of their salvation. Have you this morning conceived of a salvation which is a mere transaction? I've been a pretty good person, not as bad as my neighbor, not as bad as the people I see on the nightly news. You've been good enough so that God's just going to give me what I owe. I think I'm going to make it. I'm going to have eternal life. I'm going to make it to heaven because I've been uh, morally decent. Listen, if that's you, you've invented a salvation of your own mind. This is based on your own wisdom. This is not the plan which God has devised. Paul reminded the Corinthians about the difference between human wisdom and divine wisdom. He says, for the since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe, not work, but believe. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If the salvation plan you have in your mind in some way smiles upon your goodness or your works, that is a salvation plan which is born out of human wisdom, not divine wisdom. The salvation plan that God has designed is one that renders man absolutely unable to boast of any iota of his own salvation. Salvation is a gift of God's grace, whereby he adopts unworthy sinners, unable sinners who are dead in their trespasses and sins, and lavishes them with the riches of an eternal eternal inheritance, entirely the product of mercy. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 
3 through 7 says, For we ourselves were once foolish. If you're here and you're not a Christian, what you're hearing right now is the confession of every believer who's in this room. At least it ought to be. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We're simply unworthy sinners, shown the loving kindness of God. God didn't demand good works for salvation because he knew that we didn't have any. Instead, he extended mercy. He didn't save us begrudgingly, but he poured out his Holy Spirit, lavished the Spirit upon us richly. The thought of this gospel, of this salvation plan, is enough to overwhelm us, isn't it? At least it ought to be. That's where Paul's mind is as he considers all of this. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Well, as we come to verse 36, Paul concludes, and we're going to conclude with him. Remember, we started out by saying that what has led Paul to this in the last three chapters, some would say, well, it's everything up to this point from the beginning of Romans, which it could be. But at least the last three chapters, what has brought Paul to this point is that he has examined how the Lord has chosen to save sinners. He's, throughout the whole book, has just expertly explored the theology of the gospel. And now, Paul, having scaled that mountain, surveys all that the Lord has revealed about salvation and the glory, and then he just glories in what he sees. His concluding remarks summarize not only this doxology, but really the whole purpose of the gospel. Summarizes the whole purpose of the gospel. And you could say even the whole purpose of all the entire human endeavor. I mean, the whole uh, plan for the ages are really summarized in verse 36. He says this. This is why God works things the way that he does. He says, for, now for is going to connect to this whole text here. Uh, all All that God has worked, he has worked the way that he has. For what? For from him and through him and to him are all things. From him are all things, he says. What is that? Well, he's creator. God is the creator. He's the originator. All good things come from him and him alone. The gospel could never be the product of man's mind, uh, nor could it be fully comprehended by man. It could only come from God, from whom are all things. He's creator. He's originator. What does he say next? He says, for through him are all things. He's the sustainer. All things live and exist through him alone. As Paul said to the Athenians, that the God of heaven is the God in in whom we live and move and have our being. All things come from him. The Lord revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush saying, I am who I am. I am the uh, uh, self-sufficient one. I am the one in whom exists being. I am the one who is the life giver. He is the one for, through, uh, I'm sorry, he is the one uh, in whom uh, or through whom are all things. 
in regards to our salvation is worked and sustained and consummated by God alone to the exclusion of human works. Lastly, he says, for to him are all things. As awesome as our salvation is, you understand that your salvation and my salvation are not the ultimate end or goal of God's salvation plan. The ultimate goal of the plan of salvation is the glory of God, is the glory of God. For to him are all things. That's, that's the direction to which all things are moving in heaven and earth. All human history is intended to ultimately redound to the glory of God. He's the creator of all, the sustainer of all, and the ruler of all. He's the one from whom all things proceed and the one towards whom all things are progressing. He's the beginning and he's the end. We're going to close this way. What I want you to understand is that what we see in verse 36, this wonderful summation, for from him and through him and to him are all things, ought to put us in mind of the incomprehensibility and the majesty of God. What I want you to see is that every one of those things in the New Testament is applied to our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. What is that? He's the heir of all things. For to him are all things. He's the heir of all things. Through whom also he created the world. He's the creator. He's the originator. All things are from him. To him, from him. Is there anything in this text that indicates that all things are through him? Well, verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. All things are sustained through him. It says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. For from him and through him and to him are all things Say, well, that's just a coincidence. Okay, well, you convinced me. We do have to look at one more passage. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. All things are from him in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. All things are moving to Christ. That's the goal, that all things would be submitted to him and that he would be glorified. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the sustainer. All things are through him. As if the wonders of what we've already seen were not enough, we learn here that the way in which God has worked salvation for us, we learn that in working salvation for us, the incomprehensible, unapproachable, self-sufficient God actually stepped into his own creation in the person of Jesus Christ. The invisible became visible. The unapproachable became approachable. The incomprehensible and infinite God made himself known to finite creatures. He bridged the gap, condescended to us, accommodated our weaknesses, and came to save us. The mighty God came what? As the tender shepherd. What does that make you want to say? I hope it makes you want to say, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And you say, well, thanks for all the theology, Rick, but give me something practical before we leave. 
Okay, again, you keep making the sermon longer. So, one more. Turn over to Romans chapter 12. Just two verses and we're done. You want the practical application of everything we've just seen? Stand in awe. That's enough. Like, stand in awe. To me, that's a practical application. But look what Paul says in the very next verse. I appeal to you, therefore. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, considering everything we just observed about the mercies of God in salvation, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What would that look like? Well, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Offer your entire life as a thank offering to God in response to everything we've just seen. There's your practical application. Well, how should we end? Let's end how Paul ends. To him be glory forever. Amen. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that on one hand, we know that you are merciful, tender, loving, forgiving, long-suffering God, who's slow to anger, forgiving our transgression. You recognize that you have come near. And Lord, we thank you for the intimate relationship which you have adopted us into. We thank you that by your Holy Spirit, we can cry, Abba, Father. But Lord, this morning, we also recognize that you are transcendence. You are incomprehensible by our finite minds. We understand that you are unapproachable in your divine essence. We understand that your ways are far above our ways. We, we could never fully comprehend you in this life with our finite minds and our finite language. And so, Lord, we confess this of you this morning. We also confess your son, recognizing that he is the exact imprint of your nature. Lord, we thank you that you have condescended to us, that you've accommodated our weakness that you have come near. Help us to have a biblical conception, though it's an impossibility for us to fully comprehend your essence. You have given us revelation, revelation in nature, revelation in human nature, revelation in scripture. So help us to seek to know you better through the revelation you've given us uh, so that we can worship you intelligently, but also help us to confess that at the end of the day, you are the transcendent, majestic God who is entirely beyond us. This morning, Lord, we pray for those who are not yet Christians. We pray that they could understand that you're extending pardon to them and that that salvation for them comes through their faith in Jesus, not through human works. Divest them of any sense of working for salvation and help them to place their faith in Jesus as your son, the one who lived a perfect life, gave himself sacrificially for your wrath and is now seated at your right hand. So help these to embrace Jesus as both Savior and Lord. We thank you for this and we praise you. It's in your son's name that we ask all of this. Amen.